In a world torn by revolution, one man's relentless ambition will help forge a nation. This winter, embark on an epic 12-part journey through the tumultuous times of America's founding in our new series, Hamilton at War. A short distance away from the guns, a group of Hessians clawed their way through the blinding white smoke, unaware of Hamilton's cannons pointed directly at them. Hamilton gave the deadly order, give fire! Bodies disappeared in a gray cloud that turned red. Hamilton at War is not just an audio series, it's an immersive journey through time. The revolutionary series begins November 1st on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome to D-Day in 90 Minutes, our 15-part weekly podcast series that delves deep into the historic Allied invasion that turned the tide of World War II. I'm Robert Child, and I hope you enjoy this latest installment. D-Day in 90 Minutes, written by William Bradle, Robert Child, narrated by Travis. Gold Beach. So drive on. Royal Navy Coxswain Instructions. The third British beach was gold, the most western of the three beaches assigned to them. Frogmen went first going over the sides of Higgins' boats at 7.30 a.m. to clear obstacles that put up more of a fight than the Germans. The British attack began an hour later than the U.S. attack, because low tide came later on the British beaches due to the west-to-east movement of the waves. The hour gave the aerial and naval bombardment an extra hour, which improved their accuracy on gold. The killing zone was similar to Juneau Beach, with the Germans operating out of wooden resort houses easily set on fire by the naval guns and falling bombs. Gold had the fewest concrete emplacements of any beach. No real lanes were cleared, because German gunners concentrated on the frogmen. The British had anticipated this, and gave the landing craft crews explicit written orders to smash in and over the obstacles. Hedgehogs, stakes, or tetrahedra will not prevent your beaching provided you go flat out. Your craft will crunch over them, bend them, and squash them into the sand, and the damage to your outer bottom can be accepted. So, drive on. The instructions ended with, Do not worry too much about how you are to get out again. The first and primary object is to get in and land without drowning the vehicles. A tetrahedra was a welded steel obstacle based on the tetrahedron, a geometrical four-faced triangle. The crews knew their business running their LCTs through the obstacle gauntlets and dropping off two companies of Hobart's Funnies. Only two tanks were lost, but 20 of the LCTs hit submerged mines. For once, the aerial and naval bombardment had done some real damage. There was no German armor on the beach. It was populated with dazed and surrendering Wehrmacht troops of numerous nationalities. Tank commander Pat Blamy described the scene. Local strongpoints had been neutralized by the bombardment. Shelling and mortaring from inland was slight and inaccurate. Except for some dozen jerrys, the beach was deserted of enemy. The ones I saw were completely shattered by the bombardment. They appeared to be Mongolians. The Navy gunners also scored a direct hit on the battery with the help of a French farmer and his blind son. On the cliffs near the town of Longue-sur-Mer, the Germans had built an extensive two-story headquarters building to operate four 155-millimeter cannon located in their own concrete bunkers 
placed around the communications building. Ammunition bunkers were in all the locations. The guns and bunkers were camouflaged with dirt and netting, invisible from the sky. The guns covered gold and would have played havoc with the ships and men if not for the farmer and his son. The Germans confiscated the land from the farmer with no compensation. Furious, the farmer, accompanied by his son, paced off all the distances between the cliffs and the bunkers, as well as the spaces between the bunkers, reciting the numbers to his son, who, though sightless, had an incredible memory. Having a poor farmer and a blind boy around didn't seem to bother the Germans. They ignored them. In January 1944, the boy traveled to Bayou and contacted the resistance. The coordinates were radioed to London. With the opening barrage on gold, the German batteries responded by firing at the USS Arkansas and the British command ship, the HMS Bulolo. The HMS Ajax appeared seven miles off the coast and opened fire. The Ajax was instrumental in one of Britain's early, if not singular, victories over the Germans in 1939. The German pocket battleship, the Kraft Spee, was deployed in the South Atlantic just prior to war breaking out. Once war was declared, the Kraft Spee sank nine ships, taking 50,000 tons of cargo to the bottom. The British dispatched three ships, the HMS Exeter, HMS Achilles, and the HMS Ajax. The four ships came together off Montevideo, Uruguay, and the Kraft Spee took on the British. All the ships were damaged, with the Kraft Spee putting into port for repairs. The British went on a counter-espionage binge, sending hundreds of signals on open frequencies containing references to battleships that were, in truth, thousands of miles away. The trick worked. On December 17th, the captain ordered the ship abandoned and scuttled in the bay. On December 20th, he dressed in full uniform, lay down on the ship's battle ensign, and shot himself. The crew was interned in Argentina for the remainder of the war. Five years later, the Ajax was off Gold Beach, with the coordinates for the battery. The ship's guns took out two of the 155-millimeter guns and turned on the third bunker. A shot went through the embrasure, hit the gun, ricocheted off the breach, went out an open door, and exploded with a fire setting off the ammunition dump. There were no survivors. The British attacking the beach were the 50th Division, the Northumbrian, along with the 7th Armored Division, Piercy Hobart's old division, the Desert Rats. The major point of German resistance came from the east side of the beach, with machine gun fire backed by mortar fire that, along with the beach obstacles, destroyed all the British tanks. The Germans were firing from the brick resort hotels lining that part of the beach. The beach master, Lieutenant Commander Brian T. Winnie, Royal Navy, took the scene and made an executive decision to rout incoming craft away from the area to the left and right of the fighting. In a short time, the Germans had no targets within range. About this same time, a friendly fire incident occurred when its own ship shot down a Royal Navy spotter plane. The pilot jumped. His parachute opened, and he landed in shallow water near the beach. He took a boat back to his ship. The German strategy in the area was not to defend the beachhead itself, but to keep a regiment in the town of Bayou for rapid deployment to the beaches. The regiment, Kampfgruppe Meyer, named after its commander, responded quickly but not to the attack at Gold. 
The group had marched out at 4 o'clock a.m. toward Isigny, which is in the back of Utah and Omaha beaches, to counter a reported paratrooper attack. At 8 o'clock a.m., Meyer was ordered to countermarch 20 miles back toward Gold Beach. The regiment did not get back to the area until 5.30 in the afternoon. The British were already inland and attacked the regiment, killing Meyer. The regiment did stop the British advance and kept them out of Bayou, but only for one day. The day ended with over 25,000 men ashore and a perimeter reaching inland six miles. There were only 400 casualties on Gold Beach. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the series. Be sure to be with us for our next installment. I'm Robert Child, and this has been D-Day in 90 Minutes, only on Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.